You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. Now, before we get into today's guest, I want to take a minute to make something clear. Uh, You've heard me talk before about what's going on with masculinity and manhood today, uh, about all the confusion, the frustration, the anger, especially the anger. Now, I've been hearing from men who are fed up and want to start tearing down the feminine, start attacking certain movements. Uh, They're blaming whoever they think is responsible for the negative view of men and masculinity today. We're not about that. We're not about complaining and attacking and making anyone wrong. We're about pro-positive masculine and giving men strong role models, not pointing fingers and blaming and slinging negativity. The masculine takes action. And I believe, we believe, the only way to fight what's going on and fight what's being said is to prove them, and this is whoever they are, to prove them wrong by showcasing and celebrating positive male role models. That's what we're doing here. We're bringing you models and mentors, men who are warriors, lovers, kings, heroes, brothers to guide us on our journey to modern manhood. Now, to learn more about each of these archetypes, the warrior, the lover, the king, the hero, go to WLKHpodcast.com. We have a description there on each one of them and what they all mean. And all of us, at one point or another in our lives, are one of them or all of them. And that's what we strive to do. Today, we're talking about heroes. The hero archetype is the ultimate archetype. This is where men grow past their own ego and the need to do for themselves and are committed to doing for others. The interesting thing is, most of the men I've spoken to and invited to be on the show, they don't see themselves as heroes. They see their actions as coming from commitment, from duty, honor, courage, love. They're operating there so much, they see it as just how they are day to day. Calling it being a hero doesn't cross their minds. And that is the nature of a true hero. They just are a hero. They are being heroic day in and day out, living in courage, duty, honor, and love, right? Which are some of our sacred seven core values. They don't think I am a hero because it comes from within, comes from the heart every day and in every action. And today's guest is that same type of man, that same type of hero. When I first spoke to him on the phone about being a guest, He looked at the info that I sent him and he told me, listen, Eric, I'm happy to be a guest, but he had no idea why I invited him or what he would talk about because he said, and I am quoting him, Eric, I'm not a hero. Well, he may not think he's a hero, but after you hear the story, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide if this man really truly is a hero. Let me tell you a little bit about him. After graduating from the Coast Guard Academy, our guest had a distinguished 30-year career in the Coast Guard. I'm going to give you an idea of how distinguished. Here's just some of what our guest has accomplished. During his career, he was awarded uh, the Legion of Merit, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Meritorious Service Medal twice, the Coast Guard Commendation Medal four times, the Air Force Commendation Medal, the Coast Guard Achievement Medal, the Humanitarian Service Medal twice, And he was also awarded the Coast Guard Medal for Heroism. At the age of 23, he got his first commanding officer assignment as captain of the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Cape Current. And he was one of the pioneers of the Coast Guard's long and proud history of counter-drug operations. In fact, during his career, our guest had tactical control of ships and aircraft that seized more than 150 tons of cocaine including the 10 largest cocaine seizures in 2000 and then again in 2001. He was chief of the AIDS to Navigation and Waterways Management in Juneau, Alaska, when the Exxon Valdez disaster happened in 1989. That was the worst oil spill in U.S. history. 
The actions of our guest and the people under his command were responsible for keeping that spill from causing even more damage than it did. Our guest also oversaw more than 15,000 search and rescue cases during his career, including the search for survivors of the Alaska Air Flight 261 tragedy. And he also commanded the two dramatic rescue missions he's going to talk about with us today. Those missions happened during the infamous Perfect Storm, the monster nor'easter that hit the eastern seaboard in October of 1991 and sparked Sebastian Younger's book, The Perfect Storm, A True Story of Men Against the Sea, which was later made into the movie starring George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. Our guest's name is Captain Larry Brudnicki, and he and his crew spent more than 100 straight hours out in that storm, braving winds in excess of 90 miles an hour and waves recorded as high as 100 feet, all to rescue people trapped out at sea, both strangers and fellow Coast Guard who needed to be rescued themselves during part of the mission. So you can understand my amazement when men like Captain Brodnicki don't see themselves as heroes. As you'll see when you hear Captain Brodnicki talk about those rescues and about the men who influenced his life, including his father, and about the crews and teams he worked with, for men like him, it's not about heroics. It's about duty and purpose. I asked him why he chose the Coast Guard, and here's what he told me. Well, in the Coast Guard, you're doing real things, that real things that are important. Uh, if you save someone's life, I mean, that's a very good feeling. Uh, someone would be dead if you weren't there. They're alive because you did something to save their life. Or say with uh, setting buoys, uh, ships need to come in and out of the channels uh, to bring all sorts of goods uh, you know, to the U.S. And, and, and to the other side of the world. So buoys need to be set at the edge of the channel. Somebody needs to do it to facilitate maritime transportation. So when you are lighting the buoys or setting the buoys, putting them where they belong, you're providing a service to the country. You're providing service to people who don't even know that you're providing a service to them. See, to men like him, seemingly small things like setting buoys for channel navigation is just as important as saving lives. It's his purpose and his duty. Before getting into the story of the rescues, I wanted to know who inspired him when he was young, who his mentors and influences were. Well, I'd say my father was. Uh, he had a very, very large impact uh, on my life. And what I learned from him translated very well uh, into being a Coast Guard officer. What are some of the things that, uh, that you learned from him that translated? But my father was, was an FBI agent, special agent with the FBI. And he... he when you think about his job, there's, there's risk involved in his job. And things that he's always told me is you have to look at the big picture, what's going on. Uh, don't, don't run around like the chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But what are the risks? What, what do you need to see? What do you need to do? And put it all in perspective. And you'll come up with a plan. And that translated very well to, uh, to what I did in the Coast Guard. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, do you have any like real examples of how that translated? Having that plan, not you know, running around with your head cut off. I I don't know that I could pin it down to any one thing because it's just I gotta say a general background thing. That's that once you learn, I don't want to say it's called a process, but along those lines, once you have a process, it can be applied to everything. Go into it with your eyes open. Be aware of your situation. Be aware of your surroundings. What are your options? What can you do? What can't you do? Where's the risk? How can you avoid risk or mitigate the risk if you're going to do something? And it doesn't matter what you're applying that to. It's, it's a universal principle. As Captain Brodnicki is telling me this, I can feel how his father's advice years ago led him to be the perfect person to head up those rescue missions. How his father's mentoring and guidance prepared him for that day. Because as you're about to hear... Those rescues required someone who could widen back and take in everything that was going on, be hyper aware of his surroundings, the ever-changing surroundings and conditions, and constantly be assessing risk. We were on patrol, and in the middle of our patrols, we get what they call a mid-patrol break. You go back into port for three days, take on some fuel, food, and catch up on some sleep. And of course, I would always take my wife out for lunch because she told me that was part of my job description. <laughs> right. As it should be for everyone, right? It should yes. be everyone. Sure. <laughs> so before I before I go back out 
on patrols. I always read, read the weather reports and the National Weather Service is predicting 100 mile an hour winds and 60 foot seas, waves 60 foot tall. Wow. The situation was there was a low pressure system stalled out over Sable Island, Nova Scotia. There was an extreme higher, high pressure system being propelled southeast from Canada on the jet stream. And there was the extreme low pressure of Hurricane Grace coming up from the Caribbean. Well, when you take an extreme high pressure system and an extreme low pressure system and start, they start going towards each other. Think of two, two tra freight trains on a track yeah. for each other. The isobars, the lines of you know, constant pressure get closer and closer and closer. And the wind just gets to be of tremendous uh, amount. Mm -hmm. So the National Weather Service knows that's going to happen, but they have no specific model to predict exactly what's going to happen. But they know that there's going to be tremendous winds, which is going to produce tremendous seas. And they were putting out the warnings, uh, broadcasting the warnings uh, uh, about that. Now this is this is in 1991. So this is pre yes, yes, this is pre yes. everything. Yeah, it was October 1991. So yes, there's we don't have the communications. It's not like someone had a smartphone and they could go to the app mm -hmm. and pull it up on their smartphone. Right. But people still had access to to the weather information uh, back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had we were getting our weather fa faxes. If you remember what a, what a fax machine looks like. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> so that's that's where we were getting our our, our you know, the weather charts uh, from National Weather Service on that. Now, on land, the sky is blue, the sun is shining. There's a gentle breeze. It looks like an absolutely lovely day. But for seasoned sailors and the local commercial fishermen, they know looks can be deceiving, and they know to trust the weather reports more than their eyes. Other people, however, do not. But the National Weather Service is predicting the terrible, terrible weather that's coming. Okay. The commercial fishermen off of New England took the warning seriously. Now, I have to tell you, commercial fishermen have never been called wimps when it comes to bad weather. Yeah. They, they stay out there and they'll fish in the most miserable weather possible because that's how they earn their living. If they're only going to wait for you know, a beautiful, calm day, they're not going to be out there very much and they're not going to catch many fish and they're not going to earn a good living. Sure. So they'll, they'll stay out there in some pretty nasty weather. Well, this is to be predicted to be so, so nasty that the commercial fishermen started coming in because they were in this weather, they would most likely damage their fishing gear. They wouldn't catch any fish and every good business person knows you don't remain in business by generating expenses and not creating revenue. Right. So they head in. I'm coming off of my mid-patrol break. There's no fishermen because we were assigned to a fisheries patrol out of Georgia's Banks Bank off of New England. The fishermen aren't going to be out there. Doesn't make any sense for us to go out there just to get beat up by the weather. But we can't stay in port. So I anchored behind Cape Cod. I want to seek shelter from the storm. But we are ready and within a few minutes notice can, can uh, hoist the anchor and head off to a search and rescue case if, if the need uh, arose. So the commercial fishermen head in. The Coast Guard is hiding from the storm. What in the world is a 32-foot sailboat doing heading out of Portsmouth, New Hampshire on its way to Bermuda? Why? The sky was blue and the sun was shining? Yes. But that, the prediction was it wasn't going to last long. And then this storm did something that no other storm did. It was moving in the wrong direction. Normally, on the East Coast, our storms come up, you know, from, say, from the Caribbean, like a hurricane, comes up from the Caribbean, goes up to the north, to the, you know, Virginia or to New England, and then it curves and it heads out to sea. If you have a regular storm, it comes across the Midwest en route to get to the East Coast. So in general, look at the weather of the people to the west of you yesterday. That's most likely what your weather is going to be tomorrow.
Yes. That's simple. That's simple. So some people apparently didn't believe the weather reports. So the fishing boat, excuse me. So the sailboat is, is headed out to sea with blue skies, sun shining, and a National Weather Service prediction of 100 mile an hour winds and 60 foot tall seas. So do it's you a, think they, they, didn't, they didn't see the weather report or they were just believing their eyes more than what the, the weather service was telling them? Well, I never personally met the skipper on the sailboat, even though I had, shall we say, a big interaction with him during the storm. But it was my impression that he thought he was a good enough sailor to get through this. Okay. So, so and you have to be careful when your, e your ego enters the equation. Here's a man whose career depends on risk assessment. And it's the ego, we've all experienced this, the ego kicks into overdrive and tells you, you can do this, you can handle this, or worse, you know better. And it just starts the situation spiraling. There's two aspects of it. One, the seaworthiness of your boat or ship. And the second, the professionalism of your crew and how to handle bad situations. Now, in this particular case, the skipper on the sailboat did not know the two women that he took on board as crew. Very typical in the sailboat industry, you have a very nice boat, you wanna to sail to a lovely place like Bermuda, you can't do it alone, you advertise, uh, and, the, and the sailing community is famous for putting people together uh, in this situation, and you have people who love to sail and would go to a, like a very nice location like Bermuda, but they don't own a sailboat. So they're put together. So they did not know each other. And as I understand it, the two women knew each other, mm -hmm. but the two women did not know the man who, who owned the boat and the man who owned the boat did not know the two women before they set out on this voyage. The time to build a team is long before you get into a crisis situation. There was no team building on that boat prior to them being in the middle of a crisis. Interesting. It seems like the women didn't, you know, I mean, uh, he, his ego was there and he was saying, I can do this. And they seemed to have agreed if they went out on the boat with him. I don't know what their knowledge of the weather situation was. Uh, certainly the skipper should be looking at weather reports. He should have been getting his weather faxes or listening to weather broadcasts at that time. Again, I have no knowledge of what happened on that boat because I was not on the boat and, and never was on the boat. But they're heading out with this dire prediction that's causing the fishermen, commercial fishermen, to come in to hide from the storm and the Coast Guard to hide from the storm on the backside of Cape Cod. Right, right. And, and they're heading in a 32-foot sailboat. And I don't want to make a joke of this, but as a general rule of the thumb, if the height of the waves are going to be twice the length of your boat, you probably don't belong out there. True. As it turned out, it was worse than that. Wow. But that but the weather prediction was good enough that most people heeded the warning mm -hmm. and sought uh, safety. At this point, Captain Brodnicki believes everything is okay, and he and his 72-person crew will ride out the storm on the backside of Cape Cod. Over the course of a day, the storm begins picking up force, and conditions are deteriorating. Well, it's about 24 hours later is about enough time for all the commercial fishermen to get into port. Mm -hmm. And when we hadn't received any calls for help from commercial fishermen. I was never expecting a call from a sailboat. But when we hadn't received any calls from the commercial fishing vessels, I assumed we were good and we're just right out the storm behind Cape Cod. So about 10 o'clock at night, I call the operations center uh, because this is before cell phones. They passed me through to my wife by telephone. I told her what the plan was so she could pass it to the wives of all my crew members. Uh, so that they wouldn't be worried about their husbands being out in the terrible weather. Now, some of them, not everybody is married, but some of them as their contact point might've had their parents or a girlfriend or, or somebody else. But the information was being passed uh, to the families of, the, uh, of our crew members to, you don't have to worry, 
We're not going to be out in this bad weather. We're anchored and it looks good. All right, so pass the word to my wife so she could pass it to the, to the families to don't worry. Well, two hours later at midnight, we receive a call from the Coast Guard Operations Center in Boston telling us that a, this 32-foot fishing boat had broached, uh, rolled 90 degrees. That's not a good thing. They mm-hmm. damaged their rigging. The rigging, with damaged rigging, that's going to make it they can't sail. Their life raft is washed overboard. They don't have any exposure suits to protect them from a cold. Hypothermia can kill you because the water is 25 times more efficient at removing body heat than air. Hmm. So now they're wet. It's uh, Halloween, October off of New England, cold water, strong winds, big seas, no life raft, your rigging's damaged, and a little auxiliary 10 horsepower engine isn't going to do you any good in this situation. Right. They call for help. Coast Guard Rescue Coordination Center tells us to get underway and to proceed and assist. Now, a Coast Guard helicopter, of course, they knew could get there quicker, and they sent one. And the Coast Guard helicopter arrived on scene, and they decided there was too much risk to attempt the rescue. Risk. You're going to hear that word a lot. Captain Brodnicki and the other members of the Coast Guard begin the constant assessing and reassessing of the risks they will have to take or not take as the storm worsens. It's nighttime. That's a risk because it's hard to, harder to see in the dark than it is to the daylight. Right. And if you can imagine in your mind trying to hover over the mast of that sailboat as it's rolling violently in the waves, I mean, you're not using your instruments then. You need visual frame of reference. To, to, to do what you want to do, and you're down that low, there's a very good chance you'll end up just wrapping the, the basket around the rigging of the sailboat, and you don't want to be, helicopter does not want to be tangled up with the sailboat. Right. And that happens, they'll cut their cable, but now you're out of the rescue business. Mm-hmm. Their other option is to have the people jump in the water. But it's nighttime, no visual frame of reference. The people don't have any exposure suits to protect them from the cold. They're in the water. Bad weather. It's going to take a long time to get them out. Yeah. That, that's too much risk. Well, so the waves are, you know, however big the waves are at that point too, correct? Oh, yes. It was big waves then too. Not as big as it will eventually get during that storm, but it's terrible. So the pilot made a good decision. He's not going to put people at greater risk. So he just hovers over there waiting for us to get there. And if, if things got worse, then, then hoisting from the water would have been justified, but it wasn't at that time. So we arrive at noon the next day. And the interesting thing is the, the two women were not panicked as they were portrayed in the movie. Mm-hmm. But they were concerned for their lives. One of them had written a note with her last thoughts on life. The other one had taken her passport, sealed it in a baggie, and wrapped it around her neck, and later said, I did that so if they found my body, they could identify it. Unreal. So the, how they, long they, they did not think, the two women did not think they were going to live through the storm. Then when they find out the Coast Guard is on the way to rescue them, they are very encouraged because they would like to live through this storm. And the skipper decides he doesn't want to be rescued anymore. What do you and mean? I have, what does I have, he doesn't want to be rescued anymore? Well, he didn't, want to, he didn't want to leave his boat. He did not want to be rescued anymore. And, and I, why would he not want to be rescued? Right. That would be my question. And I don't know. Maybe the daylight gave him a false sense of security or a feeling of invincibility. Things look pretty bad in the dark. Mm-hmm. Don't look so bad when the sun comes up. The seas are at record heights. His mast and rigging are trashed. There's no way to sail out. The conditions are too dangerous even for the rescue helicopter. And yet he still does not want to be rescued. This is where the ego can be a dangerous thing especially when conditions start going south. Well, the storm's bad, and it's getting worse and worse. Search and rescue is inherently dangerous, especially in conditions like this. Sure. So, and I'm not going to put my crew at a greater risk to let him stay on the boat, wait till it's nighttime the next night. Then I'll have to deal with darkness instead of daylight, 
and the weather is predicted to be much, much worse. So I, I call the admiral, who's the district commander, who's the only person who had the authority to declare it a manifestly unsafe voyage and terminate it. That makes it no longer the skipper's option to remain on board. He must leave. Got it. So you can override him now. But I, I just want to get one thing, Captain, before we get that. So the helicopter got there at night. You said about 10 o'clock at night. I just want to get a frame of reference on the time, how long well, these people well, it, been on we got the call. We got the call at midnight. Okay. All right. I'm not sure what time the helicopter got there. Uh, they went from the uh, Coast Guard Air Station uh, Cape Cod, which is located at uh, Otis Air Force Base. So I don't know how long it would have taken them to get out there. Mm -hmm. uh, although first, initially, even before the helicopter arrived, the Coast Guard sent a Falcon jet. Uh, they move along pretty quick. They found the sailboat rather quickly. But we don't hoist people from jets. <laughs> right. Despite the ending scene of one of those James Bond movies, Thunderball, where he gets <laughs> yanked out of a life raft, Coast Guard does not employ the James Bond method of extraction. Got it. So the jet, Falcon jet found them rather quickly, and then the helicopter went out there to see if they could hoist them, and the pilot uh, assessed the risk and decided that it was too much risk at night for them to, to try to uh, hoist either from the deck of the boat or from the water. Mm -hmm. So. So we're talking about what time they got out there. I don't know. Hours of time here then, right? What's that? We're talking hours and hours of time. Oh, well, for, for, the, for, the, for the jet, I would imagine that they found them in less than an hour. Right. Because they would have had a reasonably good starting uh, point. Mm -hmm. And the helicopter would have been dispatched as soon as the, the, the position was known. Mm -hmm. uh, so it may have been an hour, two hours before the helicopter got there. I honestly don't know that time frame, okay. but along that time frame, maybe. Right. We, we get the call at midnight. We don't arrive until noon the next day, so it took 12 hours for us to get there. That's what I'm saying. So, so these women and this captain of this vessel have been in this situation for more than 12 hours, we can say. Yes. Yes, because we don't. I don't even know how long it was before they got into dire straits. Before they even made the radio call to the Coast Guard asking for help. Right. Right. Okay. So the uh, with the admiral uh, declaring it a manifestly unsafe voyage, it's terminated. Then the skipper reluctantly agreed to leave. Mm -hmm. So. Well, you were at the boat at this time. You got out to them or? Yes. Yeah, we, we are out there. Was once we arrived on scene and it was up to us to uh, perform the rescue, the helicopter, we still had a helicopter standing by should it be needed. Right. And then we were going to uh, perform the rescue. So I have two small boats, six meter rigid hull inflatable boats, mm -hmm. put one of them in the water and pick the best crew because this is terrible weather. This is not exactly what you call a training opportunity for the new people. Right. <laughs> right. So we're, we're sending the A team uh, to go rescue them. Well, because of the weather conditions, our boat received some minor damage just putting it into the water. Yeah. It went over to deliver the exposure suits to the people on the sailboat because we wanted them to put the exposure suits on first mm -hmm. in case they fell in the water being transferred to our boat or from our boat to our ship, they needed to have the protection from the cold water. So the first thing for our small boat to do was deliver the exposure suits. Well, while they're delivering the exposure suits, the sailboat slides off a wave, lands on the bow of our rigid hull inflatable boat and blows out the forward pontoon. Oh no. Now there's nothing to protect my boat crew if they head directly into the sea. And the wave comes into the boat. They're staying in water that's almost waist deep. The engine stalls. The engineer restarts it. Mm -hmm. So if they, they can't head into the sea because uh, that, that situation would be continued repeatedly. Right. So now I have a damaged small boat. Even though I have the A team mm -hmm. on that small boat, it receives some damage just putting it in the water. It's received more damage now. So I have to come up with the least risk method to recover the boat crew. Now, one of the things when you're picking up the boat, and it's hard to explain this and for people to visualize it, 
-hmm. You're going to position the ship so the waves are on one side, the small boat's on the other side, so the ship can provide some protection from the waves. Mm -hmm. But we are a 1,600-ton ship. We're rolling terribly. We're not 32-foot sailboat. We're a 1,600-ton ship, and we are rolling terribly. If I try to pick up that small boat and connect the cable while I'm rolling like that, the boat swings out, swings back in, hits the ship. Somebody could be hurt or killed. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we can't do that. I would like to pick up, headed directly into the sea, which would make the ship more stable for, for picking up the small boat. But the small boat can't head directly into the sea because they don't have the forward pontoon. And every time they head directly into the sea, a wave comes in the boat, engine stalls, engineer restarts it. There are more lives at risk now. The three people from the sailboat and the Coast Guard boat crew. Captain Burdnicki has to again assess the risks and make a decision. One of the many difficult life or death decisions he'll make during this rescue attempt. So now I have to decide the least risk method to get my boat crew back and to rescue the people on the sailboat. Because they're still on the boat. They're still on the sailboat. Now I still have the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And the situation has changed from the night before. With the helicopter. It's, it's not nighttime, it's daylight. So it's easier to see. And the people who the night before didn't have the exposure suits now have the exposure suits that our small boat delivered. So we tell them to jump off the boat and into the water. Now, I'd like you to imagine you're on the sailboat, you're not sure you can live through the storm, and the Coast Guard just told you to jump in the water. Right. <laughs> Yeah, where's, your, where's your level of anxiety? Yeah, yeah exactly. The stress level goes up. I think you're nuts. Absolutely. So the, the helicopter then hoists the three people uh, from the sailboat up okay. to the helicopter. And I'm not going to risk people's lives just to save, save property. So I'm not going to get that small boat, get that small boat back. Mm -hmm. Why would I be picking it up? Just because I put it in the water. Right. And something, you know, a lesson here for everybody is sometimes when you're working on a project, you have to be willing to accept a sunk cost and move on. It doesn't have much matter how much time, effort, or money you put into the project. When it becomes obvious, you should abandon the project, move on. So I decided to abandon the small boat. Okay. We waved goodbye to it. It was never seen again. And of course, in case you're wondering, the boat cost $52,288. <laughs> and, and later, the secretary of the Department of Transportation, Sam Skinner, said, Larry, don't worry about it. You're not going to have to pay for it. <laughs> pay for it. <laughs> yeah. now, so I, I, I consider that a successful rescue. I, I do, and, too. And that boat was never seen again. My small boat was never seen again. Oh, no kidding. So that yep. was lost completely. Yep. And how many, of the, how many of your crew were on that boat? Three. Three. And they got picked up by the, I'm assuming, by the helicopter. By the helicopter, yes. Because th with the daylight and the exposure suits, it was risk. There was risk involved, but it was an acceptable level of risk to have the people just jump in the water and hoist them from the water. With Captain Brodnicki's crew and the three people from the sailboat safely aboard the helicopter, he heads back towards the backside of Cape Cod to ride out the rest of the storm. Then he gets another call. Well, the helicopter uh, takes the, my three crew members and the three people from the sailboat and takes them into back to air station uh, Cape Cod. And we, uh, we start returning. We we're going to go back to the anchorage because we assumed we were done for this storm. Right. Well, at nighttime, we get a call. We had heard an Air National Guard H-60 helicopter from 102nd, 106th Rescue Wing. We heard an Air National Guard H-60 helicopter from the 106th Rescue Wing in Long Island, New York, talking to the Coast Guard Rescue Coordination Center in Boston on the radio. They were headed out. It had nothing to do with us. We were aware of their existence, but weren't following what was going on because it had nothing to do with us. Mm -hmm. Well, they were headed out on a rescue mission because there was a lone Japanese sailor who called in and said he was taking on water and sinking. 
Now, Coast Guard H-3 helicopter has a greater range than the Air National Guard H-60 helicopter, but their helicopters are air refuelable. Ours are not. So if you take a tanker plane with you and you can refuel several times, you can fly much further offshore. Okay. So that's why the Coast Guard requested the assistance of the Air National Guard for that particular case. Well, when the Air National Guard helicopter gets to the sailboat, they find out he's not taking on water, he's not sinking, he's scared and wants to go home. <laughs> okay. Wow. Scared, with very, scared with very good reason. Yeah. But he's not sinking. Okay. We are now getting into the worst part of the storm. And whereas our sailboat rescue, this boat was rolling violently in the waves, this boat is rolling even more violently in the waves. There's no way the helicopter can hoist the man off the deck of that boat. Uh, now, the rigging was not damaged on that boat. Okay. Because that man was really trying to sail with the weather and wasn't fighting the weather. Mm -hmm. The pilot considers having the man jump in the water and to hoist him from the water. Right. But the weather is so bad, he's not sure he can get him out. You never put someone in the water unless you have a reasonable expectation you can recover them. Now, with our sailboat rescue, the helicopter who first arrived for our sailboat did not have a reasonable expectation he could, could recover the people in a timely manner right. because they didn't have the exposure suits. Mm -hmm. The next day, when we needed the helicopter to rescue the people in the water because of our damaged small boat, and I didn't want to take on extra risk, we had a reasonable expectation. Got it. Here, where there's so much worse, there's no reasonable expectation. You can recover them. And you never want to put yourself in that situation. Do I feel lucky or don't I feel lucky? And the band was at less risk if he remained on the boat than if they tried to hoist him. And that's what the pilot decided, to leave him on the boat. Now, as it turns out, the way the storm was moving in the wrong direction, this sailboat was much further away from the worst part of the storm. And the storm was moving away from him. So as time went on, his situation would get better. His situation would get better, but the situation for the Coast Guard was about to get worse. So the helicopter starts heading home and they need one more refueling to be able to do that. But this, we are now into the worst part of the storm. The turbulence is so violent, the helicopter cannot connect up with the fuel drogue being towed by the tanker plane. They're trying everything, flying higher, lower, faster, slower, anything to improve their conditions, to be able to connect up with the fuel drogue. They can't. The pilot gets to the situation where he has only enough fuel left for one of two options. He attempts to refuel one more time. If they're successful, they fly home. Mm -hmm. If not, Helicopters without fuel do not glide like, air, like airplanes. Helicopters without fuel do not glide like airplanes. They take on the properties of a rock. Mm. You drop the rock, the people on the rock don't make out very well. Yeah. So he decides to ditch. And we all need to understand the true meaning of the word ditch. It's a euphemism for controlled crash. But a controlled crash is better than the alternative. Sure, it's better than a rock, right? It is. Yeah. So he decides to ditch. As it turns out, we are only 15 miles away from the helicopter at this point. Mm -hmm. So he calls for, to us for, for help because he's, he's going to go down. He's going to use his remaining fuel to try to do this in a controlled manner but he needs us to come and get them. So they ditch. And then I never thought that we would end up being the ones to rescue them because again, the Coast Guard sends out a jet, the Coast Guard sends out a helicopter. Mm -hmm. It's gonna take us a long time to get there. At this point, the weather is so bad, I have all four of my engines on the line we are up to full power. We're racing to the scene and we have enough power to tow a battleship. Wow. 
and we are making three miles per hour to the direction of the helicopter. You're kidding. Is that because of the currents and the storm and the wind and everything else? Oh, the, the, the seas were tremendous. Now, how big were the seas? And people ask that all the time. And the best answer I can give you is they were really big. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Normally, you stand on your bridge wing, you look down at the tops of the waves. After a while, you get a feel for estimating their height. Our bridge is 40 feet above the water. We're looking up to the tops of the waves. Oh, wow. The weather buoys are recording wave heights of over 100 feet. Oh, man. Are they really 100 feet? I have no idea, but I do know for a fact they were really big. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to remember, engines are designed to push ships through the water, not to go push ships up mountain. Right. So our propeller keeps coming out of the water. And the sh as soon as it starts coming out of the water, the engineers have to pull back power because we have a diesel electric plant and we don't want the current going to the main motor to skyrocket, burn out, and then somebody has to come out and get us. So besides trying to push the ship uphill, when we're going in the other direction and the propeller's out of the water and there's no resistance, yeah. you have to pull it back. So even though we want full speed, we're never getting full speed. Because for hours on end, the engineers, every time the current gets too high, have to pull the power back. As soon as they feel the uh, propeller back in the water, slam the power back on again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Wow, for hours. For hours. Wow. So it's taking us five hours to travel three, or excuse me, it, ta it takes us five hours to travel 15 miles because we're moving at three miles per hour. And the helicopter's already ditched. Yeah, the helicopter's already ditched long before we ever get there. And the Coast Guard helicopter that goes out there to try to rescue them, the pilot, of course, is not going to put his rescue swimmers in the water because he's not sure he can get anybody out. And the Air National Guard rescues people at sea. They should know to swim over to the basket and climb in. Mm -hmm. So he's just going to lower his basket. He decides to try to lower his basket, but the wind is so strong the basket doesn't go down. It goes almost straight back into the tail rotor. Oh, wow. He can't get his basket to the water. With the rescue basket acting like a kite in the wind, I asked Captain Brodnicki how high the winds were at this point. And again, people ask, well, how fast was the wind? And again, other than saying it was really fast, because that's not very helpful. <laughs> the day before, when we were doing the sailboat rescue, mm -hmm. We had registered 90 miles an hour for the wind. A while later, I wanted another wind speed reading. The gauge is on zero, and I know it is not dead calm. Right. I stepped out on our bridge wing, looked up. Our anemometer had been blown off the mast. <laughs> that was the day before. <laughs> wow. When the weather was bad, but wasn't as bad as it is for the helicopter rescue. Right. And I mean, 90 miles an hour, that's strong hurricane force winds at that point. Yes. So it's much stronger than that now. And the Coast Guard helicopter can't get his basket down to the water. Now, he can't rescue the Air National Guard crew, and it's not due to a lack of training skill or experience. The weather's beyond the limits of his aircraft. So the pilot does the only thing he can do. He hovers over the Air National Guard crew waiting for us to get there in the hope of taking the search out of search and rescue for us. Now that we've located them, let's not lose sight of them. And think about trying to find someone in the water in these conditions in the middle of the ocean. It's gonna be hard. So if we have a helicopter hovering over the top of them, it's a whole lot easier to be talking to the helicopter and be brought right into where we need to be. So helicopter hovers until we get there, and then he headed home. And that pilot used up more fuel than he should have. They are always supposed, all aircraft are supposed to land with some reserve of fuel on board just because conditions might be such that when you get to where you think you're going to land, you can't and you have to go somewhere else. Right. And he, he was down to something like five to ten minutes of fuel left on his helicopter. Oh, wow. So he just barely made it in himself. He barely made it in. But he did 
what he could do to help save their lives. The pilot and crew of that helicopter were all heroes. They risked their lives to stay over the rescue scene to help save others. And now, since they couldn't make it home, the pilot had to ditch. I asked Captain Brodnicki how many helicopter crew members were now in the water needing to be rescued themselves. Five. Five, okay. Pilot, co-pilot, two pararescue jumpers, and a flight mechanic. So at this point, we know it's up to us to, to rescue these people or they're not rescued. Now, I have a very big decision to make. Uh, do we even attempt the rescue? Because when we are rolling, we're rolling 55 degrees to one side, 55 degrees to the other side, 110 degrees side to side. We are a 1,600-ton cork bobbing in the ocean. Yeah. I put on full power, full rudder. There's no response from the ship for 40 seconds. 40 seconds later, the ship begins to turn. Mm. We're literally a 1,600 cork bobbing in the ocean. I'm not going to put rescue swimmers in the water because I'm not sure I can get anybody out. I don't know that I can rescue these people to get them out of the water. Now, if I do nothing, most likely before the sun rises, the Air National Guard crew will be dead. Captain Brodnicki has a critical life or death decision to make here. And most likely, whichever way he goes, lives will still be lost. And they'll be lost believing they could have been rescued. They're thinking rescues here were good, but then they're just in the water still. So how do you make a conscious decision to watch someone die? Yeah. But if I attempt the rescue and some of my crew are swept overboard by the waves and I can't get them back as a result of my decision, some of my shipmates will be killed. Right. There's no conservative approach. Don't do anything. People will die. Mm -hmm. Attempt the rescue. Even more people can die. You can't go into a situation like that hoping for the best because hope is not a method. You have to understand all of the risks. You have, you have to be satisfied. You can come up with a plan to overcome those risks. Mm-hmm. And one of those questions you asked me earlier about my father's telling me, they're teaching me, look at the situation. You don't want chicken little running around yelling the sky is falling. What are the risks? What are the situations? What are your options? That in part came back. And that uh, you were asking earlier for some situations where uh, some of his advice came back to me. That's where it is. Another, Another part of the things that came back to me is having worked buoys alongside shallow water where they mark rocks where you have to use the wind and the current. Because there's two forces you control, your propeller, your rudder. There's two forces you don't control, the wind and the current, or in this case, the seas. Mm -hmm. How can you use the two that you don't control to your advantage so that you're not fighting them with the two forces you can control? You're assisting with the two forces you can control. Right. So how do we, world, do we even get alongside the, the men in the water? And the only way to do it is to use the power of the ocean. Captain Brodnicki's father's advice rings true here. What he learned as a boy comes back to serve him. There is no place for panic, just assessment of what is available and possible solutions. Now Captain Brodnicki's team has to implement the plan. He talks of their skill and expertise and their trust in each other. And with my crew, they were well-trained, high level of skill, a lot of experience, but the, the key for me to making the decision to go forward was that they worked together extremely well as a team. Now, you don't put a team together in the middle of a crisis. That team has to be put together long before you ever face the crisis. Mm-hmm. The team has to trust the captain or the decision maker to make good decisions. The captain or the decision maker has to trust the team to accomplish the mission. I had the confidence in them. They had the confidence in me. And I decided 
to go ahead and attempt the rescue. But we're gonna have to use the power of the ocean because that's so much more powerful than the power of my ship. Towing a battleship was nothing compared to fighting these seas. Right. So we headed away from the, where the stro strobe light, because of course we didn't see people. You see a strobe light in the, in the pitch dark. Mm -hmm. Turned sideways and we're letting the waves push us to the man so that now I'm turning a two-dimensional problem into a one-dimensional problem. All I have to do is go forward and backwards to stay even with the man. Now, with 100-foot seas, you don't have visual contact all the time. The only time you can see him is if the strobe light's on the top of the wave or we're on top of a wave. Because if there's a wave between us that's taller than we are, you can't see it anymore. Right, you're completely blocked. Have you ever been to a dance where they have a strobe light and you're watching people dance and they're like facing to the right and the next time the strobe light flashes, they're, flashes, they're facing to the left and you never saw them move? Right, exactly, yeah, sure. Well, this is what it is. We see the light. The next time we see the light, oh, we have to move forward. We wait. The next time we see the light, oh, we went forward too far. We need to back up a little bit until we can get alongside the man. Wow. We're finally going to be alongside the man. How do you get him out of the water? Yeah, I was going to ask. That's the next problem. Now you got him. You're close enough. Now what do you do? And we're, I'm not putting rescue swimmers in the water because I really don't know that I can get anybody out. Mm -hmm. Now we used a cargo net that you would have seen if you watched the movie. But in typical Hollywood fashion, our weather's so bad that the man's not climbing up the net like he did in Hollywood. Okay. All right. We used the cargo net as a fishing net and snagged the man in the net. Ah, oh, okay. And hold the net up on deck. And then we proceeded to uh, pick up, well, four of the five of the Air National Guard crew. Okay. And the search area is spreading out so rapidly. By then, the Coast Guard has sent out 10 aircraft to assist us in the search, trying to locate the fifth man, mm -hmm. which was one of the pararescue jumpers the first one who jumped out of the helicopter. When the pilot was on his way to ditch, he started having his crew jump out first because quite often when the aircraft ditches, the pilot doesn't survive the impact with the water. And if his crew can live, he's going to do his best to try to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So they started jumping out one by one. He landed in the helicopter in the water and as a miracle, he actually survived. Mm. So now we've picked up four of the five and we're looking to the, for, the, for the fifth man and searching and searching and searching and we're not finding him. The missing member of the helicopter crew is a highly respected pararescue jumper and now Captain Brodnicki is faced with making a decision he knows will be unpopular with his team. And you have to imagine how rapidly the search area spreads out because of the winds and the currents. If you look for a man where he went in the water a couple hours later, he's not going to be there anymore. He'll be somewhere else. So you have to take that into account when you're searching. And by then, it had been 84 hours since we had started. My crew has not gotten any sleep. You got the violent motion of the ship. You got all the activity of the rescue mission. Tired people make mistakes. Yeah. A mistake can cost someone their life. I decide it's time for us to go home. And that's not what my crew wants to hear. Because they want to rescue this power rescue jumper. Sure. And... If you're in a leadership position, it doesn't matter what you're doing, is if you're the leader and you know something is right deep in your heart, even though it's extremely unpopular with everyone, you still need to do what you know is right. So I called the Rescue Coordination Center and told them to send another ship out to take my place as the on-scene commander. And something was hard to get the crew to understand is it wasn't important that we would rescue the power rescue jumper. What's important is the power rescue jumper be rescued. And there are many more members of the rescue team than just us. Right. They, they were an outstanding crew, but I was watching them get sloppy in what they were doing. Well, at first you get sloppy. Hours, of course. I mean, 84 hours, no sleep. I mean, these conditions, of course they're going to get sloppy. So they get sloppy. Their next thing is they make mistakes and the wrong mistake gets someone hurt or killed. The next, and the thing I also thought about is if they're getting sloppy in their actions, how good is my judgment now? 
Am I able to be making good decisions? How do you know if you're not making a good decision? Right. So it was time for us to go in. And the search is not being abandoned. They're still looking for the power rescue jumper. It's just as soon as another ship gets out there to take my place, we're headed in. Now that datum marker buoy, which the first Coast Guard aircraft dropped in the water, drifts with the currents so they can use the real drift data to plan the searches. Uh-huh. That data marker buoy had drifted from 75 miles south of Long Island, New York, and it was almost at the coast of Virginia. And remember, that's the opposite direction of the Gulf Stream. Wow. When you're in Florida, you know that the current is sending you north uh-huh. <laughs> from the Gulf Stream. Well, here, this storm is overpowering the Gulf Stream so that in 84 hours, that data marker buoy drifts from 75 miles south of Long Island, New York, to almost the coast of Virginia. That's incredible. Incredible. So then we, we headed in, and of course, the, the, the search continued after we departed. Mm -hmm. And did they find them? No, they never found them. They searched for eight days. And Coast Guard generally does not search that long. Right. But this is a power rescue jumper. He was one of the best. He had the equipment, the training, the skill, the experience, and the all-important will to live to get home to his wife and three children. If anyone could survive, he could. But another lesson is there are times when you're going to have to make a decision that you know is right and you just don't want to make that decision. The Rescue Coordination Center called off the search, and that was a difficult decision to make. Yeah. And... The pararescue jumper, his name was Rick Smith, Sergeant Rick Smith. He lived by the pararescue jumper's credo, this we do so that others may live. And unfortunately, he lost his life in service of his country. And Rick Smith is a hero, but it's not because of how he died. It's because of how he lived his life in service of others. And that's something every one of us has an opportunity to do, live our lives in service of others. Sergeant Rick Smith is a true hero giving his life that day in service to others. It was his duty, his love for other people, his honor to serve us all. Love, courage, duty, honor. These are all part of our Sacred Seven core values, and Sergeant Rick Smith certainly embodied them. I asked Captain Brodnicki if courage was a predominant characteristic of the members of his crew, if it was something that was required. Well... With the Coast Guard, a lot of people always try to joke about it, saying, well, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And while it sounds good and it sounds pretty macho, that's not really true. And others, well, you have to go out and you have to look, but you don't have to do anything before you come back. That's not really true either. It's up to every captain to decide, does his ship have the stability or whatever characteristics he needs to do the mission. Is his crew properly trained? Do they perform well? Do they have the experience, the knowledge, the skill to do what needs to be done? And if the answers to those questions are no, then the captain would be making a very good decision turning down the rescue. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you're not, you don't wanna go out there and kill someone in the process of not being able to rescue somebody else. We, we don't trade lives. We want everybody to come back. And the situation could be such that there's never a guarantee, but you have a reasonable expectation that it can happen. After the rescues were complete and Captain Brodnicki and his crew came back in, they got a visit from a government official, but it wasn't the typical visit. Well, when we came back in, uh, our patrol was not over. So we ended up uh, going mooring at the, uh, was it the Merchant Marine Academy in the Cape Cod Canal. Secretary of Transportation, Sam Skinner, actually came to our ship. That's rare. And Coast Guard was under the Department of Transportation at that time. We're under Homeland Security now. Okay. But he actually came to the ship and he wanted to meet the crew. And it wasn't one of those things where you think of some high level government official you know, he says some nice words, calls three crew members up, shakes their hands, gets a photo op, and leaves. He talked to the crew, and then when he was done, he went and shook the hand of every member of the crew. Now, we weren't in our own normal mooring, so we had to have our radio 
uh, room communication center with people on watch. We had people down in the engine room because we had generators running and things like that. When we were all done. I took him on a tour of the ship because he literally wanted to shake the hand of everyone, not the ones who could just get up on the fantail and muster up so he could talk to them. Right. So he did that. And then when we were done with that, uh, you know, there was a little news coverage of that, of course, because a big current event at the time. Right. And then we went back on patrol. Right back out on patrol because that's their duty, their job. It's what true heroes do. I want to acknowledge Secretary Sam Skinner as well for taking the time to come out and shake the hand of every single crew member. That is the sign of a true man, showing appreciation from the heart for what they did. The crew didn't do what they did for medals or accolades. They did it out of a sense of duty and honor. But the appreciation of the hero in each member of that team is so important, and Secretary Skinner showed that. I brought Captain Bernicki's story to the members of the roundtable. I wanted to get their take on the events and actions of the people involved in the rescues. And I also wanted to get a sense of what they've experienced in their own lives with true heroes. Here's some of that conversation. What it feels like to me, and just what we were talking about earlier with all the Marines, is the theme of, with courage is like selflessness. There's just, I was feeling you are not that. important. It's, you're giving everything to that other person. Well, yeah, I, I, I really feel that you, what you said, I feel like you become hyper-focused on the task and the lives, yeah. the importance of their lives. Because if you don't, you're going to start thinking about how crazy it is and how irrational it is for you to continue. And you're not going to do it, right? Yeah. But if you focus on the importance of their lives, you can really feel compassion coming in there, right? And yeah. I think compassion is what drives people to be courageous when they may have not been courageous otherwise. That's how I often... Well, and in moments of courage, what I've noticed before is when I've done something that people would say was courageous, I never felt it was courageous in the moment. In the moment, I just felt very confident that what I was doing was going to be successful and I would get it done. So it didn't feel like courage to me, but then somebody else says, I can't believe... (coughs) you did that and it's like that's what I feel like this is it's like and there is that element of selflessness or um, compassion for others that you have so much of your attention on the outcome or the others that the fear dissipates it's like an intensity of purpose is what I'm feeling yes Mm -hmm. yeah I feel that intensity of purpose yeah that sense of duty yes that you know you have a duty to step up um well, I can also see... It pulls you off yourself, right? That well, but also, the interesting thing is, in, in that situation, is he also has his crew. Mm-hmm. So it's not about just, okay, well, am I going to do it? But now I'm putting 20 or 40 people at risk to, you know, save three. And so that's got to be another mental thing that you're going through to, you know, really assess. When you're describing that, um, Eric, what comes to mind is that takes a very level-headed kind of person, a very mm-hmm. stable. Like, I tend to be a passionate person. I'll do things intense in the moment. But that takes a very level-headed kind of guy, a person that's steady and stable. And, you know, and yeah. those people are rare. Those people are not common. They yeah. can maintain that type of intensity in, for extended in periods. That kind of a situation. Yeah, right. well, let, let me read this. It, it plays know. into this. This is right out of the Marine Corps yeah. handbook. Courage. The heart of our core value. Courage is the mental, moral, and physical strength ingrained in Marines that sees them through the challenges of combat and the mastery of fear. To do what is right, to adhere to a higher standard of personal conduct, to lead by example, make tough decisions under stress and pressure. Courage is the inner strength that enables a person <coughs> to take that extra step. That Everybody keeps... The inner strength thing. The inner strength. Yeah. But what comes up around it is and said a few times, intensity of purpose, intensity of this, intensity of that. You train under intensity, so when you're in that, it's just a decision to be made. Intensity mm-hmm. is just an emotional feeling. That's all it is. So you're redirecting all that fear into yeah. purpose. I heard that from uh, that ranger that um, I'd love to get that tape. That ranger that uh, my sister interviewed. He was a, a Ford dealer in my hometown. Uh, 
his name slips my um, Jimmy Sneed. Anyway, he was a ranger in, in Patton's army. And when my sister interviewed him, he said, you know, I didn't think I was doing anything heroic at the time. It was just an intense, bad situation. I was trying to save my friends' lives, people that I cared about. And I just did what I had to do. And you often hear that, I just did what I had yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. And that, that word duty that you brought yeah, up, or yeah. purpose, really, to me, that's what makes men become greater than themselves. Duty, selflessness, service to others, doing that which is greater than yourself, compassion, purpose, all of these are hallmarks of heroes. And they're all characteristics of men like Captain Bernicke who live this way every day. This is part of the men they are. And this is why they don't consider themselves heroes. That's not false humility or denial. It is simply a strong sense of this is who I am And this is how I live my life. It's a code, much like our sacred seven core values. It's a code they live day in and day out. And it's a code we can all live by as men, as heroes ourselves. So now I want to know what you got out of Captain Brudnicki's story. What hit you the most? What is your view of the hero inside you? And what heroic things have you done in your life? Let me know. You guys know you can find me on social media. The links are on the website, wlkhpodcast.com. Click them and let me know. Also, if you go on there, we have a challenge for you, a hero's challenge, which will have you stepping into more and more of your true hero, your true heroic self. I don't care what level you're at. We can always get better, guys. So this challenge is going to help you do that. You can find that at theherochallenge.com. Also, remember to rate us and leave a review and comment. And most importantly, make sure to share this show with men you know who will get value from it. So please pass it on. I want to thank Captain Brudnicki for joining us today. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you to be your brother on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.